Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On September 8th, 2015, the first episode of Set Listing Bruce was released. To celebrate our anniversary month, I plan to put out a new episode every day this month. During this month, I would like to share feedback from my listeners. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments for me or any of my guests, please send me an email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 469-249-2442. If you're not part of our Patreon group, please think about supporting the podcast by making a small monthly donation. Everyone who joins gets a personal thank you card from me and a Set Lesting Bruce sticker. Depending on your level, you can get early access to episodes and unedited videos of my discussions with guests. If you haven't rated the podcast before, please go to wherever you get your podcast and leave a rating, hopefully five star, and let people know why you love the podcast. Hope you enjoy this month of episodes, and now on to the show. Producer is the person who directs everybody. I want you to play this. I want you to do that. They don't do it. They just make the decisions. So if Bruce was to produce his own record, all that means is he's making the final decision. So he can say, I want this to be an acoustic guitar instead of an electric guitar. I want it to be played with a little bit faster of a tempo or a little bit slower of a tempo. I want it to be finger picking instead of strumming. Those are the decisions a producer makes. Okay. Now you, you can have a producer that's very simple like that. And that happens quite a bit. You have producers that'll just go in and say, yeah, I like that, but I want it to be brighter or comments like that. I, I've actually had people go in and say, I want it to be more blue or more green. And you start to learn what they mean by those colors, but they're just making decisions. They're just trying to tell you to do something that they hear in their head until you do what they hear in, in their head. Then they're finally happy once they hear that. So it's your job to figure out what that is. Now, the engineer is the one that presses the buttons to make that happen. It's just a musician and a guitar player, if they say, what, I, instead of playing an electric guitar, I want you to play the acoustic. They put the electric down, they pick up the acoustic. If they say, I want it to be brighter, then they have a console, the engineer has a console in front of them, and they make those tweaks and they say, okay, I'm going to twist the EQ and make it sound brighter. I'm going to adjust the compressor to make things sound tighter. Or I'm going to go ahead and add a little bit of reverb to make it sound like it's in a bigger room. Or I'm going to add a little bit of delay so it has a little bit more of life to it. So it's those type of decisions. So the engineer presses the big red button and makes all the adjustments on the gear. It's the producer that's telling them what they want. And it's the engineer's job to create what they want.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. Uh, we are getting off the Bruce train, though I'm sure he will come up. But we are going to be doing a lot of talk about music and podcasting. My new friend Jay is here. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, tell us a little about yourself. Sure. I've worked in the music business for just over 30 years now. I am an engineer and producer, primarily an engineer. I've worked out in Nashville for the, the past 20 of those 30 years. Before that, I was up in New York, and I'm born and raised in Boston. So I had quite a bit of a path through the music journey, engineering records, and primarily in Nashville doing country records for pretty much all the, the country artists. Yeah, we have a little bit of controversy right now with Jason Aldean, don't we? With my little town, and uh, yeah, he's creating quite the stir. Yes, he is, and I, I, I love Jason Isbell's thoughts on Twitter. Jason is very vocal on Twitter, and I've heard him in many interviews. Yeah, don't follow me on Twitter. That's just I'm, I'm that's where it's I have just fun. A problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I I do have to comment. I meant to do this before I record. I'm sitting here in Dallas where it was 109 today, and you're in a cap, and it looks like a sweatshirt. And I'm yeah. going, I'm wearing a hoodie. Yeah, yeah I was like, oh, I'm so jealous. No, don't be jealous. It was hot here, and it was yeah. probably in the 90s with humidity that's so thick you could cut it with a knife. But my wife keeps the air condition on like sub zero, so. I, I get chilly and like to wear the hoodie. My wife and I have been married for a long time. And one of the compromises we made probably since we moved to Dallas back in 86, 88, is she can keep it as cold as she wants during the summer. But then in the winter, you can't. Well, I want it up to 78. No, if you want it at 70 or 68 right. during the summer, we're going to have this thing 68 during the winter. And I do realize a, like a 70 in the winter feels colder than 70 in the summer. But yeah, that's that was and she's fine. We'll do that. So, yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> My wife's 68 all year round. Yeah, I, I do laugh every once in a while. You're sitting here watching TV with a cover on. You quit the summer during the summer. I like a cover. That's fine. Absolutely. So we got to rather wear the hoodie then. So I'm good with it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about growing up. You mentioned Boston and moved around a lot, but talk a little bit more where you grew up and what kind of music did your family listen to? Sure. No, I was born and raised in Boston. So I was there up through at least 18 and my family, the music they listened to, my mother listened to whatever was popular on the radio, typically Diana Ross, disco type stuff. And then as time went on, she just went down whatever popular radio was. My dad listened to Kenny Rogers and Air Supply and that type of stuff. And I listened to rock and roll and metal music was primarily what I would do growing up. Hair metal. I grew up in the 80s. So a lot of that. Springsteen was big when I was in high school. And so I did all that type of stuff, but I wanted to go, I wanted to be in a band. Journey was my favorite band growing up. And I just always thought what how great it would be to play in a band like that. 
but I realized pretty quick I am not that talented when it comes to playing an instrument. So as, as much as my mind knows what it's supposed to do, my fingers just don't want to do it. So I went ahead and went to school for audio engineering. And I went at the time, what was the only audio school? It was a place in Ohio called a recording workshop. And then as time went by, I went and learned more. And I went through a few other institutions and then ended up teaching audio engineering at a place called SAE in Nashville. And it's was originally named the School of Audio Engineering. And then it just became SAE. And so I did that. But growing up in Boston, after I went to school, I moved back to Boston. And the thing that I always find funny is I went back to Boston with a piece of paper in my hand saying I was an audio engineer. And I went to the two studios that were in Boston at the time. They were right across the street from each other. One was called Fleetwood and one was called ESS. And I went into both of them and said, I'm an engineer and I want to work here. And they said, sure, absolutely. You will be our new freelance engineer. And at the time I had no idea what freelance meant. So I'm like, yeah, great. I went home and I got a job. And I said, I'm a freelance engineer. And I quickly found out what freelance meant. So I spent all my time hustling every band I could find to take into the studio. Because that's the only way I would get paid is if I hustled and brought them in. So during the day, I would work at, Free at, at Fleetwood recording books on tape. And then at night, I would work at ESS recording the rock bands. And I did that for several years. And then I, I got used to it, got familiar with the equipment, got comfortable. And I moved to New York and I actually opened up a recording studio, built it from the ground up. And it was nice. It wasn't huge, but it was very nice. And people really liked it because it was new and comfortable. So I did that. And then just one day out of the blue, I said, you know what? I want to do bigger projects. I don't want to just do local bands. So I just packed up my car and drove to Nashville the very next day. Left my studio, left everything there until I found out if how Nashville was going to go. That's when I started teaching at SAE, and that's when I started working. For I worked for three different producers in Nashville, but one of them, his name was Bob Bullock, and he's the one who did all the big country records, and that's really how I got my start. So I'm going to sound like Denzel Washington and say, explain it to me like I'm 10-year-old. Sure. We hear the words producer. We hear the word engineer. What's what is each role of that? You like you'll often hear Bruce produce this album himself. Then other times he works with a producer. I know Jimmy Iovine was an engineer on some of his early stuff. Since I've got one, I would like to know <laughs> the difference. And if that's such sure. a simple question, I apologize, but I think a lot of people don't understand. No, you're 100% right. I think it's one of those things that until somebody just tells you, you just don't know. And I'm primarily the engineer. And when I think of an engineer, I think of the person who presses the buttons, okay. the person who runs the technology. And a producer is the person who directs everybody. I want you to play this. I want you to do that. They don't do it. They just make the decisions. So if Bruce was to produce his own record, all that means is he's making the final decision. So he can say, I want this to be an acoustic guitar instead of an electric guitar. I want it to be played with a little bit faster of a tempo or a little bit slower of a tempo. I want it to be finger picking instead of strumming. Those are the decisions a producer makes. Okay. Now you, you can have a producer that's very simple like that. And that happens quite a bit. You have 
producers that'll just go in and say, yeah, I like that, but I want it to be brighter or comments like that. I, I've actually had people go in and say, I want it to be more blue or more green. And you start to learn what they mean by those colors, but they're just making decisions. They're just trying to tell you to do something that they hear in their head until you do what they hear in, in their head. Then they're finally happy once they hear that. So it's your job to figure out what that is. Now, the engineer is the one that presses the buttons to make that happen. It's just like a musician and a guitar player. If they say, what, I, instead of playing an electric guitar, I want you to play the acoustic. They put the electric down, they pick up the acoustic. If they say, I want it to be brighter, then they have a console. The engineer has a console in front of them and they make those tweaks and they say, okay, I'm going to twist the EQ and make it sound brighter. I'm going to adjust the compressor to make things sound tighter. Or I'm going to go ahead and add a little bit of reverb to make it sound like it's in a bigger room, or I'm going to add a little bit of delay. So it has a little bit more of life to it. So it's those type of decisions. So the engineer presses the big red button and makes all the adjustments on the gear. It's the producer that's telling them what they want. And it's the engineer's job to create what they want. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I, I think of this in terms of, like, I'm a big Aaron Sorkin fan. I loved West Wing, Sports Night all his movies and i was talking to a buddy 
and he said, there's a lot of dangling plot threads in West Wing. And I said, yes, I think that Aaron could have used a continuity editor, right? Not an editor to change his words, but someone to say, oh, by the way, you've left this story dangling, right? right. So I think that would be a lot of the reasons why having an outside person both as an engineer and a producer when you're being creative to to give you other ideas and also to bounce off things right because it's all this creative process that as bruce says one plus one equals three you're 100 percent right that when you have a producer or think of an artist just like what you're describing they're in it they're deep into it and they're paying attention to every little thing that they're creating, they're not looking at the bigger picture. It's the producer's job to look at the bigger picture, to tie up the loose ends you're talking about, or to make sure that a storyline comes to a conclusion, to make sure that the chord changes fit into, if it's a commercial song, that it follows some sort of format. So there's all sorts of ways a producer can work, and it's just a matter of which way does the producer that you hire, how, what kind of producer do you work best with? So, so you could have a you could have a producer that just wants to make the, the decisions like yes, I like that or no, I don't like that. Right. I want to go back. You I guess you you picked up the guitar or other instruments and tried to play and you decided you weren't very good at it. How did you pick engineering instead of writing songs or lyrics or trying to write melodies or that how did you even think to get in the actual technical side of music? Well, that's a good question. You're right. There is a, a path one takes to get from one point to the other. And I played in bands. I played in bands all the way through school. I played keyboards and I played bass guitar, the two instruments that I would play. I'm not very good at it either, but I can fake my way through a song. And I know that's not what it takes to make it as a musician, you really have to be talented. And so what I would do is I would write a lot of songs, just like anybody else growing up. I try to win the girl and write her a song or try to get my emotions across about somebody passing away or something. And I would write a song about it and I would write primarily lyrics. And on occasion I would do the lyrics and the music, but then I would hire people and take them into the studio. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was taking people in the studio to do what we were discussing where I'm freelance and I'm bringing people in and I just need to, to bring people in order to make money on my own songs. I was bringing people in and then I would hire musicians that were talented to come in and play the music. And I would hire the best singer I could find to come in and sing it. And then I would put together like a CD of 10 songs that I wrote. And then I would sit back and think, what do I do with these songs? And I'd say, I can't sell the CDs at a show because I'm not playing a show. So I ended up reaching out to a, a producer in New York. I'm sorry, not a, a publisher out of New York. And they took my songs and they put them in TV shows and movies. And that's where money first really started to come in. So I was making some good money. I had a song on um, Saturday Night Live or some other movies and stuff. And so my songwriting was working, but when I was... Going back to the studio, it was the owner of the studio who looked at me and said, you're doing a really good job producing these records. 
And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a songwriter. I'm not a producer. And then he told me what a producer was, just like everybody else. I, I didn't know at the time. I was young and didn't have the experience behind me. And once I figured out what a producer was, I was like, oh, I like being a producer. And just like anything else, you have to have, I feel like you have to have some talent there as well. And that's when I, you know, went to school to become an engineer to, because I was in the studio. I love pressing the buttons and doing things and being that person to make the decisions. And I always like saying, yeah, no, I like that melody or change the guitar part or let's try this. And I just kept doing it. And I kept hiring the different people that I knew would be able to create the parts that I wanted or sing the song the way I wanted to. Being a big Journey fan, I used to hire this guy named Bob Vos, who's the lead singer of a band called Fortune. They still play to this day out of Boston. But I would hire him to come in the studio and record, and he had a very Steve Perry-like voice. So if I would write a Journey-style ballad, I would bring Bob in to sing it. If I would get something a little heavier, I would go ahead and get a different singer to come in and sing it. So it's that type of thing that takes time and you don't know it's just like anything else you try this and you'll if you like it you continue down that path and eventually it turns into something but it does take a little while till you find your groove welcome to the prisoners of rock and roll i'm bruce kramer and i'm joined by my co-host ryan mccusker and doug mccusker every two weeks we bring you a new episode about music the people who make it and the influence it has on us here's a little sample of the topics that we cover when the Sex Pistols broke up, Richard Branson, who ran Virgin, tried to get Johnny Rotten to become the lead singer of Devo. <laughs> but- this is the album that turned the page for them, what they are today. It changed my world. One of the many albums I have written down in 91 that changed my world. It changed the way you thought, the way you listened. Like, what is this? You can always tell Springsteen's solos, because he, like, drags his notes. He doesn't bend them, he drags them. R.E.M. is the worst concert sure. I've ever seen. They're the worst band yeah, hands ever. Down. The Beatles is the person you bring home to meet your family. Maybe you're going to marry them one day. The Rolling Stones is the one-night stand, and the Stones win every time. So the electric chair is where we sentence a song to death for all of its crimes against musical humanity. Yeah! Yeah! Can music save your immortal soul? We think so. So check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcast or visit us on Facebook or at prisonersofrockandroll.com. We're also a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. We'll see you on the cell block. What was there another sign of that? Like you enjoyed putting together jigsaw puzzles or working other kinds of like mosaics or was that something that you liked putting things together one of the reasons i'm not surprised i'm a podcaster is way before i was podcaster people would say jesse has conversations with people in the lot in the elevator right? Jesse never meets a stranger. So I'm just curious, was there when you were younger going through that, that putting that piece together is what enjoyed you, you enjoyed? Sure. No, I was always technical growing up, like you're describing. I I would draw pictures all the time. I was always big with pencil drawings and stuff like that. And my father was a civil engineer, And I worked for my father growing up and I would go on the construction sites and do anything from 
digging ditches and running a jackhammer to uh, eventually being able to do some drawings and and anything in between, answering a telephone or whatever. So I originally went to school for architectural engineering, and I did that for a couple of years, and I enjoyed it, but I did not think it was something I would want to spend my future on. So after two years of doing architectural engineering, I switched to audio engineering. Still had that same technical feel to it, but it was in a field that I was passionate about. I was Because when I was in architectural engineering, I was going out to see bands play. I was writing songs. I was going into the studio and I wasn't, I didn't care about how you make a brick, which was one of my classes in school is how do you make a brick? And I just remember during that class, that specifically that class, I was like, I don't want to do this. So I finished the year out. So I did finish two full years of architectural engineering and then transitioned into audio engineering. The same technical stuff. It's very much a lot of electrical engineering and a lot of manipulation of equipment to sine waves and so forth. And it was fun and I enjoyed it. And it was something I was passionate about. I was making records. I was making music, if not for myself, for other people and seeing the joy that would come out of that and the passion, everything just built. And I was like, this is where I want to be. And that's what eventually drove me to Nashville. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So it sounds like you were doing okay in New York. New York's the big apple and right all that. You've gotten your own. What what, was it? Ambition? Was it curiosity or going on to the next challenge? Why did you decide to go to Nashville? To be fair, I'm a Red Sox fan. So being a Red Sox fan in New York is probably not a good thing. (laughs) Okay. There Uh, you go. (laughs) My family, I'm from, I'm Italian. My family came over on the boat and settled in New York. And my parents grew up in New York, but I was actually born and raised in Boston because my dad was went to engineering school at Northeastern. Okay. And then once he did that, he never left. So going back and forth was never a big deal for me, even though I was not not a Yankee fan. Yeah. Yes, things were going when I did have my own place and I was able to make my own rules and do everything. But the songs I was making, I remember I made a CD for a band called Hayes and Jane. And they were a rock band out of New York, and they did very well. People loved them. And they were a bunch of young kids, and they played great music. And it was fun. But I never heard their songs ever again after that moment. Because they're local bands, and they're selling CDs, but they're they're not doing anything of note. So I was like, I want to hear the songs I'm producing on the radio. And we're in a movie, or I want to do a live show in an arena. I want to do this. If you're in a band, you want to be the rock star on stage. If I'm an engineer, I want to be the one making records that people are saying, I love that record. And that's what I did. So I said, the only place I could do that is in New York, Los Angeles, or Nashville at the time. And I chose Nashville. And I went there. And at the time, I was never a big country fan, but I became one quick. That's 95% of the music I worked on in Nashville is country records country or gospel, but primarily country records. So did you have enough of a reputation to open, there were a couple of doors open for you or were you just cold calling once you got to Nashville? No, I had no reputation. Let's put that (laughs) right out there. When I moved to Nashville, nobody knew who I was. But the way it went down. (laughs) So the way it went down is when I was in New York, I was sitting in the studio and I was at this little we had this little table like a little dining area for us to eat our lunch at stuff and i remember sitting in there 
and it was between sessions and we were eating lunch and I was flipping through this magazine. It was Mix magazine. And in the magazine, it had an advertisement for SAE Institute, which was the school there. So I said, you know what? I'm going to move to Nashville and I'm going to go teach at the school. And I remember everyone laughing, saying, oh, you're not going to, there's no way that's happening. And then I, we had a Shania Twain CD sitting on the, the counter up there and I opened it up and I was reading the credits and it said it was engineered um, by Bob Bullock. I said, I'm going to go work for Bob Bullock. Again, everybody laughed at me and I don't blame, I don't blame him at all for laughing at me. But what they didn't know is I was serious. So the very next day, I literally, the very next day, packed up a suitcase and drove to Nashville. I didn't close the studio and I locked the doors and took off for a while, but I went there with the intent to never come back. So I went there and the, so the very next day I hopped in the car, I drove straight to Nashville and I didn't go anywhere. I drove my car straight to the parking lot of SAE and I walked in and said, I want to talk to the director of education. And they gave me his room number and told me to go upstairs and where it was. And I did. And I told this story on my show because I actually had the person on my show. His name was Tony Cottrell, who happened just out of pure luck, happened to be my instructor when I went to school in Ohio. Oh, how he funny. He also moved to Nashville and he was the director of education. Did so you know that to, going on? I, no, no idea whatsoever. Sometimes so, it's nice. It's luck. It's all yeah. luck. So I walk up the stairs or up the elevator and I go to his office and I open the door and it's Tony. So I was like, oh, hey, and I talked to him and we recognized each other. And so I talked to him for a little bit. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I want to be a teacher. And he says, really? So what have you done? And I'm like, oh, I told him what I'd done. I'm thinking I'm all impressed with myself. He's like, yeah, that's not enough. I said, what do you mean? Because well, the teachers here have to, they either have to have the education behind them to be a teacher or they have to have worked on projects that are big Grammy winning projects in order for us to bring them in as specialists. You haven't done either. Oh, okay. So at the time I, I told my girlfriend at the time, I said, look, I have to go back to school. And she thought I was nuts, but I said, I'm going back to school. And I did. I went back to school and I got a, a degree in engineering and a degree in business. Ended up getting a master's in business leadership. And I told Tony, I said, I will be back. And he said, I know you will. And as soon as I finished, I went back to that school. I stayed there in Nashville. I never left. I still never went back to New York. I was picking up demo gigs and whatever work I could find just by networking. But I eventually did go back to the school. I said, Tony, I'm back. He goes, you did it, didn't you? I said, yes, sir, I did. He goes, all right, you start tomorrow. How and long did I it take you? And... Yeah, how long did it take you to get the degree? It was probably a two-year process. Okay, start that makes sense. Wow. Now, he let me do it. He let me start working before I actually had the piece of paper in my hand. Yeah. Because I, I went and I told him, I said, I'm back. And I was going to tell him I was approaching the finish line. And he said, you start tomorrow. And I was like, oh. Okay. So I went in and I started the very next day and he had me teach a course on something I had, I literally, I had no idea what I was doing. None. I was teaching a course and it was for the night students. And it was a course that I find out later 
that he was supposed to teach it. And he had taught all day and didn't want to teach the night class as well. So he told me, yep, you start. So he's giving me a break, but at the same time, he's lightening his load. Sure. And so I go up there to teach that class. And I just remember these people looking at me like, who are you and why should we listen to you? So I spent more time trying to win them over than I actually did teaching them. But it, I did. And after a while, I, I told enough stories about being in the studio and how we accomplished this or that. And they appreciated it. And then I taught them their curriculum as well. And they were happy. And Tony went to them and did a survey of how well I did. They all seemed to like it. So he hired me full time. And then eventually he retired out of that position and I took it over. And I ended up being the director of education for several years over there. That's nice. And then to tie it all one step further. Yeah. We would bring in guest speakers a lot at the school. And one day Bob Bullock was coming in as a guest speaker, the guy that was from the Shania Twain CD. And he came in and normally our students will set up the studio and get it all prepared. So when the guest speakers come in, all they have to do is sit down and show techniques and how they did this or how they did that. I had no students that were available to do it. So I set it up myself. And when Bob came in, he did his thing, just like you would do for any other time or any other person that would come in. And when it was over, I was walking him out and he looked at me, he says, who set up the studio for me? I said, I did that, sir. And he goes, huh, you did it. I said, yes, sir. He goes, any chance I can get you to be my second? I said, yes, sir, you can. And I did. And I worked for Bob for about three years and now he's produced or produced and engineered thousands of records at this point, but he had just finished the last 11 George Strait records, which George Strait's got over 51 number or over 50 number one hits. And he did the last three Shania Twain albums with Mutt Lang and stuff. So the opportunity to work with him was fantastic. And I learned more in the first day working with him than I did through the entire time going to school and all that stuff. But what I really learned is Nashville is all about speed. It's about speed and being a good person. If you're a good person, it doesn't matter how much they want you in there. They want you to be part of the team. And, but then once you're in there and you're part of the team, you better move fast. If they say they want something to sound brighter, you better have it brighter very quick. If they say they want a different microphone on this instrument, you better have that microphone up and running quickly. So it was all about speed. So a couple of because it was yeah, it's thousands expensive. of dollars being right. spent a minute. Yeah. So a couple of stories. One, Bruce was in Austin in February, and George Strait walked out on stage with him and introduced him. Like said, for Very here's cool. someone who needs no introduction. Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band. And so uh, he didn't play with him. I was so begging, just do anything, right? <laughs> but what I found so funny, Jay, is a couple of people, and one specifically from Canada, yeah, some old guy walked out with Bruce. Is it maybe the mayor of Austin? <laughs> and it was he just, may as well be, right? Yeah, exactly. No, you don't understand. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Neil Gaiman. And he, years ago, did a commencement speech that was so well-received, they ended up publishing it called Make Great Art. And he said that you need to be talented, quick, 
and nice. But the reality yeah. is you only got to be two out of the three. <laughs> if you're talented and nice, they will give you a little extra time. Yeah. If you're talented and fast, they'll put up with you being an SOB. <laughs> if yeah. you're nice and fast, they may take a little less quality. And I thought about that a lot, that there is a lot of that in reality. If you are quick and dependable and you're a good guy, we're going to give you a little bit of grace. And so I love that idea of being a good, you need to be a good person and you need to be quick because we're burning daylight here, right? There is just the time in the studio is very expensive. Yeah. You hit it right on the head. Your analogy is perfect. That's exactly what Nashville is. Nashville, they call being nice. They say you have to be a good hang. And so that's exactly what it is. You go in there with the right attitude. And I think one of the benefits I had going into it over other people who were fighting for the same job is I was older. So I had already worked through a lot of things and I wasn't going in with an ego. I wasn't going in cocky. I was just going in to help. And I was more able to anticipate what, what Bob or what other producers, when we were working with others, would want. And I would just be prepared to give them what they want before they knew they wanted it. And I think that's where I had a leg up versus others because I wasn't as talented as some of the other engineers in Nashville. Still not as talented as some of the other engineers in Nashville. I have a talent of my own. I have my own coloring that I put on things. But I'm not as technically talented as a lot of the others. I think my strength comes in is being more intuitive and being more of a people person and understanding what they want, knowing when to speak, when not to speak, when to go get the other microphone. And like you were saying too, with your analogy, I would hire assistant engineers all the time. And I would always hire the ones that were coming out of the school that, because I was still teaching, but I was hiring the students from the school that were good to be around. They weren't the technical geniuses that were coming out of the school. They were the ones that were just fun and would do anything you asked them to do or anything that I asked they would do it. And that to me was more important than them coming in and being cocky and giving me a bad reputation. They'll talk. I've heard that from so many, like I'll listen to a podcast and I know you do a creative podcast. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but I'll hear people who are showrunners in Hollywood and they'll talk about is this person going to be a jerk at 11 o'clock or one in the morning when we're trying right. to break down a story? Right. And Yeah. And you do want that. All right. I'm going to give you a chance to name drop. And if you don't want to use specific names, I'm good. But you've got to have some fun stories of all that time working on the A-list in Nashville. So you want to share a couple of stories? Sure. I'd be happy to. And I'm an open book. You can feel free to ask any question okay. you want. I can tell you some that were fun, some that were just some things that I did or when, when I first got to Nashville, like I said, I want to go work for Bob. And I remember Bob and this other producer were sitting in the control room and they were discussing what was going on it, while the band was out at lunch. They were discussing what they wanted to do in the afternoon. They were just finishing this record. So it was like the very last day we were spending on the record. So it's not unheard of. The One of the producers had a bottle of champagne and they wanted to celebrate. So they asked for glasses. 
Now, the studio doesn't have champagne glasses or anything like that. So it was either you're going to be drinking your champagne out of plastic cups or you're not going to be drinking the champagne. And they just, so they said, absolutely not. It was like they lost their mind over the champagne. And I was like, what are you talking? Why is this such a big deal? It's nothing. Bob's the most easygoing guy I've ever met in my life. I'm like, what is going on? So I turned to the assistant. I'm like, okay, run to the studio down the street. See if you can find some champagne flutes or if not, go to Walmart. I don't care. Just go come back with them. And hours later, this person comes back and they've got these champagne flutes. And they were just being a wise ass. They were just making the person run around for the sake of running. It's like, it was like an initiation. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God. So I get it now. So I understand we're dealing with a bunch of frat boys here is what it was like. And it was just fun. It was a, a good time and everybody took it in stride. So you had times like that where people are laughing. When projects are going good, people are laughing. People are having fun. They're enjoying things. And then there's other times. Or an example of a project that went really well. I We did a project through Bob. Bob was the producer of it. And it was for Travis Tritt. And he was recording the theme song for the Atlanta Falcons. Okay. And it was at a studio called Emerald Studios in Nashville. I think the studio still exists, but it's privately owned or something at this point. Different name, everything. But it's on Music Row. It's one of the first biggest or one of the first and big studios. And I had gone in to set up for the session, put up the microphones and get drum kit, get everything in place. And and Travis walks in with holding an acoustic guitar and he looks at me. Now, I've only met him two or three times before at a party at Sony Records years before this years before and i'm nobody and he's travis tritt and he walked in the studio that day and he just looks at me he goes oh hey jay i didn't know you were going to be here and i was like holy shit he remember my name yeah like, okay so i'm there and i'm like what are you doing here it's so early he goes oh i gotta write the song i said what song is that he goes oh the one we're recording today <laughs> i'm like you have to write it and he's yeah is there a place i can sit down for a few minutes i'm like a few minutes I mean, I've written hundreds of songs at this point. Nothing has been a few minutes. Uh-huh. So I'm like, sure, buddy. Right over there, this lounge. Nobody's here yet. You're on your own. So he goes. And then the musician starts showing up, and the session leader shows up. It's a guy named Chris Losinger, amazing guitar player. He's out with Garth Brooks right now, and he's just awesome. So he shows up, and Travis Trick comes out, and he looks at him. He goes, yeah, let me show you what I have. So Travis puts his leg up and on a stool or something and starts strumming his acoustic guitar and sings the song. And Chris just reaches over, grabs a piece of paper and starts charting it in real time. As he's playing it, he's charting it. As soon as he's done, he looks at me and says, here you go. Can you make copies of this? I'm like, that's it? So I run, I make copies of this. I hand it out to all the musicians. They go out into the room and they just start tuning their instruments and everything like normal. But then they just do a little run through, play the song for about a a verse and a chorus. And they go, all right, let's go. And I'm like, what do you mean, let's go? We hit the red button. And one take, that song was done with the exception of the vocals. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. We just set up for hours. You come in and write the song in minutes. And we record it in one take. And then we spend a few more takes doing vocals. It, primarily one one or two takes for his vocals because he's just very good at it. Yeah. And then we had this background group come in 
a few women came in and just sang around a microphone like those blues type singers. And at the end of the day, the song was done. And I had never seen anything move that fast. And it's an amazing song. It's really fantastic. If you ever get a chance to see the Atlanta Falcons play, it's definitely a great song. That's awesome. That's just, that isn't the way it's supposed to work. No, it wasn't the way it worked when I grew up. The oh, thing that, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I remember I was at the Nashville Country Music Hall of Fame, right? And there's all kinds of exhibits. And there's one with Tom T. Hall talking about I love. He's, this is not the way it works. He said, I wrote it in 10 minutes and it sold millions of dollars. Trust me, that isn't normally the way it works. But every once in a while, you just do that. So that's too something funny. Something happens. Yeah, just something yeah. happens. I was supposed to be an exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame, not like for a musician, but there was a producer out of Los Angeles. His name was Richard Pittman. And he came across all these old recordings. They were in a barn in Pennsylvania somewhere. And they had been there for years, like years. They were old recordings of Johnny Cash and Dolly Parton and Hank Williams Jr. and Jerry Lee Lewis and so on. And they found these recordings that were live performances that the engineer who owned that house at the time, he would go do these live performances and record. He had a little reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape machine he would bring with him, record all the performances, and just throw the tape in a pile. And there were thousands of them of all the years he was recording. But they just sat in a barn year after year, summer, winter, summer, winter, summer, winter, all over and over. You'd think these tapes would be destroyed. But somehow Richard heard about them and he tracked the guy down. And after years of negotiating back and forth, after the guy passed away, the family let him have the tapes. And then I had, to, I was hired to come on and remaster all or master all those tapes so that they could try to sell them and distribute, distribute them and so on. And the Boston Globe did a, done a big article about it. And that article was picked up by the by NPR. And I did a NPR tour from station to station and told them how the project went and how we found the tapes and what happened, how we did the work. And then the Country Music Hall of Fame found out about it and wanted those tapes. Like, We're not done. We're still working on them. There's thousands of them. And they said, would you consider coming here and doing the rest of the, the work in one of our rooms, which is a glass wall, and the people who walk through the Hall of Fame would be able to see you working. So after a bunch of negotiation, I agreed to it, and they were all set to do it. But for, I don't know what happened, but the producer, it never they never finalized it. But it got pretty close to the fact that I was going to be on display in the Hall of Fame. That would have been fun. It would have been, been fun. I don't know if it would have been fun or not. but That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the podcast. Why did you decide what was that itch you were trying to scratch? And that's a fairly long story, but I'll try to make it as short as possible for you. I, I talk to people and bring guest speakers in all the time. And I always try to educate people, whether still teaching at the college or not, no matter what company I work for, or what projects I'm on, I'm always trying to educate the next generation because you have to pass on your information. You're, you'll never move up unless you pass on your information to the people who are helping you. And if you want to move up, especially in Nashville, the person behind you has to be ready to take your position. I remember I was working with a guy named Matt McClure, 
who is a, he's a producer and an engineer as well, but I was working for him and I worked for him for several years in Nashville and super nice guy. He's worked on countless records as well. But if Bob Bullock was the A list, Matt at the time was the B list. And I worked for another guy named Jim Cristaldi, who was probably doing the C list stuff. So it was just a tier system. But I remember I was doing a Lee Bryce record with Matt Blur, and he did several of Lee Bryce's records. But we were doing Lee Bryce, and Matt got stuck in the studio one day. And Lee Bryce, he wanted to go in and finish singing the song, him and his producer at the time, this guy named Kyle Jacobs, who ended up becoming Kelly Pickler's husband. But Kyle Jacobs and Lee wanted to record that song. They had it in their head and they wanted to work on it. And Matt didn't have the time to do it. He was stuck on something else. So he asked me to go in and do it. And I had to be ready to go in and do it. And luckily I was ready and I went in and I did not do the job that Matt would have done but I was still able to do the job. And it was my, my assistant that had to step up and do my job. So we all had to step up that day. And if my assistant wasn't ready to step up, I wouldn't have been able to step up. So that's definitely an important piece of the puzzle. For me, I used to do these sessions every Wednesday night. I would do an open door session. You can come to me, ask me any question you want anything because what I found is I could never find people to teach me. If you had questions, here's your open door policy. Come in, ask me whatever you want. I'll help you do anything I can. If it's introducing you to somebody, I'll do it. If it's helping you put a promo package together to get work, I'll do it. If it's helping you set your pricing, I'll do it. That was going great. And then more and more people want to get involved and so on. So we decided to start doing it online. And we were streaming it and people liked it. So this TV station out of, out of Las Vegas, a small community television station asked if we would record it live at their studio. And I said, absolutely great. So once a month I was going to go into Vegas, record several episodes and so on. That didn't happen. It fell through because COVID and all the other stuff that would put a halt on that stuff. And they, we said, we'll just continue doing it this way and we'll release it ourse ourselves. So we did. And we've done several hundred episodes. And what is what I've noticed is people seem to gravitate towards certain types of episodes. So I, I went ahead and I rebranded it to fit what people were gravitating towards. And I broke it into two, two podcasts. So I have one called The Jay Franzi Show which is where I talk to people that I've worked with in the industry and anybody in the entertainment industry that wants to come on and share behind the scenes stories, things that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Well, like I had the guy from the Steve Miller band on the other night and he was telling stories about how they set up their guitars and the different types of tuning they do and how they get it ready before the show. I had one of the guys from Brooks and Dunn come on and he was telling me the ins and outs of life on the road with Brooks and Dunn and, guy from Garth Brooks and so on. They come on and they tell these stories and they're great stories. And I've had comedians come on and talk about their journey and the behind the scenes challenges that they have. Gina Grad from the Adam Carolla show, she came on and talked about her challenges and breaking into the broadcasting world and her book and so on. So that's been great. It's That's really what I enjoy doing is talking to these people. But then we have the secondary show, which is called Frenzy and Friends. 
which is where we do artist development and we teach people answer questions. They're both live shows, but we answer questions that people ask. And it's last week, this past Wednesday, we had a live show with a guy named Mike Errico. He's a singer songwriter and educator out of New York city. And he's had a huge career still does as a singer songwriter. And he also teaches at Yale and a few other colleges and very smart guy. And he came on and we talked about songwriting for an hour, just giving the tips and tricks on how to write a song. So it's, they're both two, two shows that I enjoy doing. I get to talk to friends and people like that. And just like yourself, you've put together quite the arrangement in your shows and the way you set it up to talk to people and you create a theme and over time it develops and develops. Yeah. And that's essentially what we did. So that's how it all came about. Any future, what would you like to do with both podcasts to continue what you're doing or do you have other ideas how you'd like to expand it? I really do. I, it, it's funny. Just like you said, you enjoy doing it. I really love doing it. I absolutely love doing it. And it's become not only a hobby or what started as a hobby or to help people and all that stuff, but it's become a passion of mine. And what I want to do is I want to be a, a person who does interviews and is known for doing interviews. I want, if you come to my show, yes, I want you to come to the show because the guy from Garth Brooks is on and Garth Brooks, and you want to hear the stories about Garth Brooks and all that stuff. But I want you to then hit the follow button because you enjoyed the show. It wasn't just the moment to hear about Garth Brooks. It was the laughter or the, the stories or the fun we had or answering questions and that type of stuff. I want it to be more, more enjoyable and interactive and that. And then if we can answer questions for you, fantastic. If it's people who want to hear stories, we'll tell stories. If it's people who want to know some technique, we'll tell you the technique. There's no secrets. I love that. I I started out this a very Bruce-centric podcast, and it still mostly is. But pulling back the curtain, Jay and I are both part of a group where other podcast hosts say, hey, do you need a guest or you need something? And so I've expanded my guest list because I, I want to tell other people's stories. I want to share, and I think my listeners are enjoying it. I hope so. They would tell me if they don't, hopefully. I did, before I forget, I had a guy named David Leaf on the show last year, and he had written a couple of, he'd written Brian Wilson biography, written a couple of them. And he also huge Springsteen fan. So I ended up having him on two episodes. One just talking about his Bruce fandom. One talking about his work with Brian Wilson. And the reason I'm telling you this is he was in college. He bought Endless Summer in an eight track. And had never really checked the Beach Boys and said, I love this band. I'm going to move to California. I'm going to meet Brian Wilson. I'm going to become his friend and I'm going to write his biography. And David said, I moved to California. I am now friends with Brian Wilson and I have written his biography. And he 
was involved, like the TNT special where they did a tribute to Brian Wilson. He's been involved with other things. And so your story about, I'm going to go to Nashville, I'm going to work at this school, right. and I'm going to meet this guy. Sometimes it happens. Yeah. It's that sort of passion and dedication to something. I think that's as much of it as anything else. You have to have the talent to do the job. But like we said earlier, you can be the best guitar player in the room or you can be the worst guitar player in the room. But as long as you're a guitar player who can meet the minimum standards, you belong in the room. Yeah. It's like looking at a field of baseball players on the field. Yeah, you got the best one and you got the worst one on the field, but they all made it to the field. Yeah. So as long as you make it to the field and you can press the buttons and do the job, then your goal is passion and drive and being a good person. That's really what it takes. Is there anyone in the studio you haven't got to work with that you'd love to? Oh, sure. I'm sure there's hundreds of them. I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of the country artists. I'd like to work with more of the rock artists. Yeah. That was my foundation growing up. The engineer that I replaced for Bob Bullock, a guy named Jason Hall, and Jason went on to work for a producer named Jay Joyce. And Jay Joyce is a, a very good producer and very good at what he does. And they produced a record for Hailstorm. And Hailstorm's a band that I really enjoy. I wish I could have been part of that record. That would have been nice. I've met them several times and talked with them, but I've never had a chance to work on their record. That would have been that would have been a highlight. Does the day gig affect your enjoyment of music? Um, there's times when it does, sure. There's times when it's like any other job. Yeah. It is a job. And there's times when I've had people push back on me pretty hard because you're, like we said, you're spending hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a record. And if you're not moving fast enough or if something's not going right, if their creativity isn't coming out the way you want it to or the producer can't get what they want, they need someone to let it out on. And a lot yeah. of times that's the engineer. So it's like mm -hmm. any other job. There's good days and bad days. And there's been times when I've left going, I'm never going to do this again. Forget this. Yeah. this you know, I, I stayed up all night long and set all this stuff up for this. Forget it. But then it goes away. You know, well, I've met some artists that have been fantastic. And I'm like, I'll work with them any day of the week. And I've met some that 95% of the artists are fantastic. Yeah. But there is that 5% that you're like, oh, how did you ever even get here? Yeah. So. It, the reason I was asking is you'll hear TV showrunners that if they do, if they produce comedies, they can't watch a comedy on TV because they're just seeing the, right. oh, why did they the do the ad break there? Why did they do this? What was that tease? Or like a drama, like I know what to do this. I didn't know if that, your ear, you're able to turn it off and just enjoy, like Jason Isbell's new album. I can just play that and go, wow, I really like that music. Or just in your subconscious kind of hear as the sausage is made, as you said. Yeah. My wife gets mad at me because I'll say, Oh, did you hear that edit? And she's no, and don't tell me. <laughs> you know, it, it could be on a TV show. It could be 
on a record radio, but I can hear the edits. I can hear, you know, when somebody does great work and I can hear when somebody does sloppy work and sloppy yeah. work, it's put on the radio all the time. I don't think that just because it's on the radio means it's great. Yeah. A lot of times it is, but no, there's definitely sloppy work that gets by. And same thing in the movies. I can see edits. I can hear edits. I can, yeah. things like that. Or I could, my, what I tell my students or when I was teaching, what I was telling the students was that I don't think you're truly ready to go out on your own and be an engineer because everybody thinks you graduate school and you're an engineer, just like I did. I had my piece of paper and I went to the studio to become freelance. Yeah. But you're not ready. It takes the experience and you have to learn and you have to go through the stuff before you start to hear the differences. And it wasn't until I worked for Bob Bullock when I, until it really clicked. I owned my own studio and I was recording records because I knew the technical part of it, but I didn't truly know the nuances of it until I worked for Bob or Matt or Jim, uh -huh. primarily Bob. But yeah. when you're working for somebody like that and you're learning those things, then you hear stuff. And my biggest job is I love mixing the record. I like taking everybody's performance and then my performances to mix it together and make it sound good. And that's my art, my way of being creative. And I was doing that for years, but it wasn't until I was working for Bob where I started to hear things differently. And I would listen to the radio and go, oh, why did they choose to do that? Uh -huh. And then I would say, why did they make that decision? Or that could have been so much better if they had done this. And that's when I realized, okay, finally, now I've heard it. This is where I should be. So it's not until you can start hearing like a fantastic or critically acclaimed record and think to yourself, it would have been better if they had done this. That's when you're ready to go out on your own. And that's when you're ready to truly start making the decisions. Now, whether or not anybody likes your art, who yeah. knows, but... Are there artists that you enjoy listening to that you can turn off the critical ear and just enjoy hearing? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, I love that I smile. Have a, a, I, have a, I have a wide taste of musical interest. Yeah. And the, the first band that came to mind when you said that is Five Finger Death Punch. It's a metal band and they're pretty aggressive. So I like things from that and i have an eight-year-old daughter i have three daughters but the one in the middle is eight and we listen to that and we laugh about it and stuff but i like hailstorm on the rock side and then i like some of these country artists there's a new country artist out right now i've never met her don't know anything about her i saw her on instagram i think it was in or tiktok one of them yeah and I really liked the song and it was reminding me of what I would have done. And I said, this is spot on to something I would have done. When I was working with Jim Cristaldi, who, by the way, is by far one of the best musicians I've ever met in my life. He is a musician, guitar player. He plays every instrument, started on drones, but he's primarily a guitar player. He sings. He's had his own record deal. He's put on his, his own records. But... I would produce and engineer records for him. And he was awesome, but he was country through and through. He was just country. And I was rock. And when we would mix or do records together, we would really create these hard and heavy 
country records. They were still country, but they had edge to them. They were, you know, grittier. Mm-hmm. And that's what I enjoyed doing. And this girl that I saw on Instagram uh, is her name is Lynn. And she has a song out called Six Feet Deep. And if you check it out, oh my God, is it exactly what I would have done? To a T, there's not a thing I would have done differently on that record. It is just awesome. It is that blend of hard rock and country music. That's where I would live if I could do it. That's awesome. I will check that out. Jay, what should I have asked you that I haven't? Good question. I think we've covered the the career. The rest is just fun stories. Yeah, which are always fun. At the end of the day, they're just stories. Yeah, but there's something beautiful about that. All right, I'm going to get you out of here. Thank you. You've been very kind with your time. But before I get out of here, we got to ask you the Mary question. Jay Armstrong is a retired high school English teacher. He now is a writer. But when he was teaching, he would print out the lyrics to Thunder Road and give it to his high school seniors. And they would discuss it, reading it as if it was a poem, talking about Bruce's choice of words and the lyrics, talk about the imagery Bruce was trying to paint, and then ask the question, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? So, Jay, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car? Do I have to give a direct answer or can I talk for a minute? You can talk all you want. The only wrong answer is no or yes. Those are the wrong answers. Anything else is perfect. All right. If you don't mind, I'll I'll take a minute and please feel free to cut me off whenever you want. No, this is fine. This song, to me, it's a great song. It's very storytelling, very Bruce Springsteen, right? Very storytelling. Not very commercial. It's not the most commercial song I've ever heard. But it is very storytelling. And when I was talking to Mike Carrico the other night about songwriting, one of the key pieces of songwriting is storytelling. And to me, there is no better example of storytelling than Bruce Springsteen. And it shows true in this song. But the song, if you listen to the lyrics, and if you listen to him sing it live, it's very emotional. And he... He lets that out. And even when he plays it live, where most people play songs faster live, he plays it slower live. So he gives it even more feel and more emphasis by playing it slower. But the song is in a major key, which is typically a happy key. You play in a major key when you're playing happy. And in country music, everything's done by numbers. So you have a number system. So if the song is in the key of D, like this song here, um, that would be your one chord. So they would say it's a one, four, five or one, four, five, six minor. And with Bruce Springsteen, that's exactly what this is. It is your typical standard chord change of a song. You couldn't get any simpler. It's a one, four, five. It has a six minor and a three minor in there on, on the bridge. And he's playing happy music behind a very melancholy vocal. And to me, that's very unique. And it comes comes across different because he chose to do something different. And I really like that. So can get a little bit more geeky on that stuff. But essentially, I like the fact of the song being a melancholy kind of different approach with happy chords under it with the standard chord progression. It is not your typical 
first course, bridge course out, it's more of the story. So it's more verse, verse, and so on. Good song. And to answer your question, does she get in the car? I like to think so. And I like to think so only because I'm a sucker. And yeah, I'm the sucker. If you listen to any of the songs that I write, they're all, they try to always end with a, a positive note. Yeah, that is a great answer. And thank you for expanding. As you were talking about a, two months ago, I invited four or five writers to join me. And we did a, what is Bruce Springsteen's best written song? Not his, your favorite song, not the best song, but pure as a writer. And one of the songs came up is Highway Patrolman, which is off Nebraska, which Johnny Cash did an amazing cover of. And it is definitely the story. Yeah, I think that he did the same trick in Born in the USA. It is a very song about the Vietnam vets and the troubles they had put to this very patriotic, booming anthem song. And he did that on purpose, right? That dual message is what makes it powerful. So, yeah, I'm glad you thought brought that up about Thunder Road. Yeah, we discussed that the other night, too. If, if you're writing a political song, and if you did it straightforward, you probably would not come across well. But if you can include both sides and you can take a look at it from both directions, whether it be political parties of left and right, you don't want to to separate it. You want to bring it together. And if you can do something with a little bit of satire to it as well, then I think you have a better chance of having an actual hit song. If you're just preachy with your song, I don't think it goes over as well. I absolutely agree. Jay, Let this me was... ask you a question yeah, here. Sure, please. Do you have time for me to ask you a question? Yes, anything. Yeah. You asked me why I got into it. Why did you get into it? couple reasons. I had done podcasting. I started out doing, like many people did, episode reviews, right? You'd watch a TV episode. You talk about it. Um, and I was doing that for Doctor Who, and I still do a Doctor Who podcast. But the I three things happened. Lynette Carolla, you talked about Adam Carolla. That was his, it's now his ex-wife. But at the time, she did seven or eight episodes where she interviewed friends of hers that were celebrities about their Springsteen fandom. And I loved hearing them talk about Bruce as just, a, they're just another person there in the pit or on the stadium singing. Then Springsteen and I, that documentary came out where all these fans talked about how much Bruce's music meant to them. And I wanted more of that. So in the spirit of lighting a candle instead of cursing the darkness, I said, why don't I start this? And I love the story. The guy who owned my network and now then he's gotten out of the podcast business and uh, I'm now part of Pantheon uh, Network, which is all music podcast. But the guy who owns Southgate Media, I said, hey, I want to do a Bruce Springsteen podcast. And he goes, okay, what is that? And I go, I'm going to find fans of Bruce Springsteen and talk to them. How are you going to find them? Well, I'm going to use the internet. Okay, that's great. So he hung up his phone 
And he looked at Martha, who's his wife, and said, Jesse's going to do a Springsteen podcast. I think we'll get a season out of it. And to him, a season is 12 episodes. I just hit 1,040. <laughs> I've been doing this since 2015. And the show has evolved. I still mostly do Springsteen fans. But I still bring in I, – I, I love having – I had a couple of business guys – who normally talk about networking and security and all this. One of them talked about Van Morrison for an hour. The other one talked about the Rolling Stones. And they were just at the end. I can't believe that's all you wanted me to talk about. And I'm like, yeah, that was great. So, yeah, that's go. how I started. So over a thousand episodes, how is it transitioned for you? I know things transition over time. So what was the yeah. big transition for you? So one of the things is couple things one expanding it past springsteen fans though i did that from the beginning i did what i called b-side episodes which i would do other artists the other thing is at the end of 2020 after the pandemic year i realized if i wasn't careful jay this would be a podcast of nothing but middle-aged white guys talking about bruce's music and I am, I'm actually older than middle age. I turned 64 this year, but I specifically started searching for younger audiences, female audiences, African-American, other, other races and things that either love Bruce, which there are a ton, or other music for that diversity. I wanted this to be a broader spectrum for a better discussion. I think that's the thing that I, I've been, and I've also found that I really love episodes with you. We talked very little Bruce, but we talked the creative process and your journey. And I find that like when I have a writer on or a, a musician or another podcaster, we get to talk the creativity and the joy of that. Let me ask you, because you do a very good job and you, well, thank you have you. That's it set up in a second. And I can see the behind the scenes. I see how the sausage is made talking to you and yeah. leading up to this, but I've never spoken to you before. And you've done a great job making me feel comfortable and welcome here. And I appreciate that. And you can see that your questions are well thought out and you ask some very, very good questions. And I've done hundreds of shows and I can tell you're up there as top three for sure. So by spending so much time doing all these shows and developing a craft to be able to do this stuff, what's keeping you inspired to keep doing it? So Jay, I will tell you, and you know how people say great question, but it is a very timely episode. I, this will be, this is probably going to be my sixth episode this week, just by pure luck of scheduling. And I will tell you, sometimes when I get home at 5.30 at night, the last thing I want to do is jump on the, go into this, my spare bedroom, my studio, as Linda and Chris call it. But the moment I get that guest in front of me, I it just goes away, the tiredness, because I want to hear your story. I want to hear my guest story. And that's the, when it comes back to you write the song you want to hear, you write the story you want to read, I try to do the interview I would want to hear. 
I think that's a, a great way of looking at it. That's something that I try to do. Yeah. But when I look at it and I take it from your point of view, people don't, or most people don't think about it, let alone know what goes into making a show. There's a lot of work. And for you to do six in a week, that's an extreme amount of work. It's an extreme amount of preparation. But like you mentioned earlier, there's editing that goes involved. And for an hour long show, you're looking at about four hours of editing. And there's a lot that goes into putting a show together. And most shows don't make money or don't make a lot of money if they are making money. So it's like we don't make any money. We don't charge people to come on. We don't take on sponsors because we don't want to ruin the listener experience. And by doing that, it requires passion. So you seem to have a great passion for it. And I can't thank you enough for having me on your show. Jay, that was very you to say those things. It See, that drives when I have a guest say, Jesse, I didn't realize how much fun I would have. Or you've made me think about things I've never thought out before. Or then you go, okay, maybe I'm decent at this, right? To put it things like when you hear a finished song and you go, man, I did put that together. I may not suck at this, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. fine. I, don't, I didn't want to give you hope. Forget yeah. it. Yeah. No, no I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. it. Yeah. If someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? You can just go to jfranzi.com. That's J-A-Y-F-R-A-N-Z-E.com. And please check it out. I, I've listened to a couple of podcasts. I love the stories, the discussion, the idea of talking about creativity and how to do things. Keep doing what you're doing, my friend. I really appreciate it. Listeners, please be kind, be safe. And remember, if we open up our hearts, love won't forsake us. Just let the music take us and carry us home. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.